you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7, as this is uh, our text for this morning coming from there. This will be the last week that we are looking at uh, the Gospel of John, at least for the summer. Uh, We'll be moving into our series next week of the uh, postcards from God, looking at the shortest chapters in all of the Bible uh, throughout uh, the summer. But this morning we'll be looking at John chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 37 through 39, and I'll have to admit that I've been excited about bringing this text to you this morning, if for no other reason it gives me the opportunity to dispel some myths and misconceptions. And what I mean by that is very specifically this, is that we are a Presbyterian and a Reformed church, and we like the Holy Spirit. That may be news to some of you. Those of you who come from more charismatic backgrounds may be kind of wondering, and you may be somewhat skeptical about that whole idea, because you still don't see any of the things that you saw in the churches that you grew up. And those of you who come from more traditional backgrounds, some might say those of us come from more mundane backgrounds, that whole idea that we like the Holy Spirit, and you're getting a sense we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit today, may be making you feel quite uneasy right now. There was a thing in modern Reformation a few years ago that uh, was a spoof on the Apostles' Creed. It was a satire of the Apostles' Creed. And when it came to the point of the Holy Spirit, it it, it declared, really, it was intended to say, this is what kind of the evangelical Christianity has degenerated into. And that part of the Holy Spirit declares, we believe in the Holy Spirit, who did some weird stuff at Pentecost, but doesn't seem to do much these days except speak to the hearts of individual believers. Well, in the text that we have today... Jesus declares to us that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is alive and well and is at work in his people and in his church throughout the world. So if you would, turn with me to John chapter 7. Begin our reading in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified the word of our God. Let's go to our God in prayer. Father, we do come this morning to your word, inspired by your spirit, who also is at work to illumine the hearts of your people. We pray now, Lord, that by your grace and by your direction, that your spirit would speak these words of truth to us, enlightening them that we would understand, and then shaping us according to them, that we may become more like Christ, that we might become fruitful for the sake of the cause of Christ, and that we might have the joy as we learn to rest in the grace of Christ. Father, turn our attention to Jesus. May we see him, and him specifically and clearly, for he is our hope and our salvation. We pray this to our joy, but ultimately to your glory in Christ. Amen. What we have before us this morning, I think, is one of the most dramatic scenes in John's Gospel, if not the whole New Testament, maybe even in all of the Bible. 
just so we get an understanding of exactly what is taking place in the beginning of these short verses. The people had gathered together, really all of chapter 7, the people had been gathered together for the Feast of the Tabernacles, one of the three major Jewish holidays. But this of the major ones was the one that was the most carnival-like, the one that people came and enjoyed and celebrated. People came from all over into the city of Jerusalem in order to participate in this. And tradition dictated that anybody within 20 miles was expected to come and make the pilgrimage in to participate in this festival that was, in one sense, a celebration of the harvest. It was a harvest festival, and in one sense, it was a thanksgiving to God for the provision of their food and the giving of rain that enabled them to grow the food that they would eat to sustain them through the past year and an expectation of the year to come. It was also a celebration of God's provision in the past, particularly remembering as the people of Israel had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and that God had provided for them as they camped out all of those years, night after night after night. And part of the way that they would celebrate in this festival was people would come together and they would build makeshift huts or create tents of their own and then they would live in them during the seven days of this festival. Tradition made it such a pattern that people began kind of getting in competition, like you would see people with Christmas lights. Some of the huts were very simple. Some of them people were planning for years on end, and they sounds to me like they look kind of like um, homecoming floats, but they lived in them. They were just ornate, and, and they would have competitions and about you know who had more Christmas, who had more lights on theirs uh, than others. And they would live in these for the duration of the week as part of this carnival-like celebration. And then, obviously, it was a religious festival. The whole point in coming together was to remember and to recognize and, and to honor God. And so each day during this festival, the priest would go down to the Pool of Siloam, the people would follow them as they were going down to the pool. And the priest would draw water in jars. And then they would come back into the temple area. And they would pour the water out in the temple courts. And the whole purpose of them pouring out the, um, the water on the floor of the temple courts was to signify how God had miraculously provided water for the people during their time of wilderness wandering. Some of you may remember in Exodus 17 when the people were grumbling because they were walking around in a desert and they hadn't had anything to drink for uh, quite a while, a couple of days, which is tr significant when, when you're dealing with water, no water in, in that hot area. And so they were beginning to grumble. And God instructed Moses to go to the rock and strike the rock once and the water would flow, and Moses did that, and as he struck the rock, the water flowed, everybody was satisfied, and God demonstrated not only his power, but he demonstrated his willingness and his ability to provide for the people, and as the water came out, all of the people were satisfied. And then on the last day of the feast, which is what we have in our text before us, they continued to make the pilgrimage, but things were a little bit different. Rather than just one of the priests, the high priest would lead a processional, followed by all the other priests who were followed by the people who had gathered. 
And rather than just a simple jar, he would take a, a golden vase and he would draw water out from the Pool of Siloam again. And they would come back up to the temple and rather than stopping in the temple courtyards, he would go in and pour the water out next to the altar. The last day, which is known as the, the great day of the feast, the reason that things were different is because they were continuing to recognize how God had provided for them in the past, but they were also anticipating the way that God would provide for them in the future, anticipating the prophecy that God would pour out his spirit among his people. And while the, priest, the high priest was pouring out the water, the people would, re would recite in unison these words from Isaiah 44, 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by a flowing stream. And all the people who would have memorized this passage while the priest was reading that, they would also recite that with him. And all the people that were gathered understood that this passage was speaking of the coming of the Messiah, the Messiah who himself would not only provide and give them water and, and, and meet their needs uh, and their provisions, but that he would pour out his spirit uh, upon the people. And then after the passage had been read and the people had recited it, the high priest would then lead the people in prayer, a prayer for the coming of the Messiah, the one who would pour out his spirit. And as the high priest is praying, and even when he finishes praying, it was just eerily silent. Somewhat like if you've been to the Grand Illumination and you're, that period between the almost last of the fireworks and the grand finale, when it just hush, even though you know people are there. You might hear a, a little bit of murmuring, but it is essentially, essentially quiet. And in that time when the people were quiet and the priest had just finished his prayer for the coming of the Holy Spirit, it's at exactly that time that Jesus stands up and says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me. You can imagine the reaction of the people when Jesus was speaking and declared that he is the fulfillment of all of the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. But in this passage and in Jesus' words, he wants us to understand this, is that when we place our trust in him, we receive the Holy Spirit. And it's not simply an experience of receiving the Holy Spirit, but he tells us in these verses that the Spirit will flow from us like rivers of living water upward to God and outward to other people. Now, the text itself breaks down in, in really two primary parts. And the first thing that I think that we need to recognize is this, is that what Jesus is revealing to us here is that Jesus himself is the source of every blessing or along with the line of our hymn this morning, Jesus is the fount of every blessing. See, notice what Jesus is saying. He's saying, come to me, and drink. In other words, the source where the people then and now will receive the promise of the pouring out of this living water is, belongs to Jesus. It's found in Jesus. It comes from Jesus, and, and it's found in him. We see this prophesied throughout the Old Testament. The Exodus, 
17 passage where Moses struck the rock and the water flowed. Jesus is the rock of our salvation who was struck once and then the spirit flows and salvation flows from him. We see it even further in that symbolism is because Moses didn't just strike a rock once but sometime later at another time when people were thirsty and grumbling assuming God had saved them this far uh, but only to let them die of starvation and of thirst out in the wilderness. It's the irrational thought that many of us struggle with. I identify significantly with this because Israel's words just constantly pop into my mind in difficult times. Have you brought us this far just to let us die now? The obvious answer is, of course not. If he's provided for us in the past, he's going to complete what it is that he's called us to do. But Israel was grumbling about that. And Moses went back to God again and said, we need the water. And the Lord said, go to the rock in Meribah and speak to it this time. And the water will come out. Moses gathered the people around the rock and he took his staff and he struck it again. And water began flowing out. But the Lord corrected Moses and actually forfeited his right to enter into the promised land. Now, sometimes we get confused as to what's the big deal? And obviously it's not wrong to do because he'd done it once before. Why was the Lord so severe when Moses had tapped the rock? It was disobedience. But even more than that is because that rock in both of those situations points to the coming of Christ. And Christ would be struck once and then after that, we talk to him, we pray, we don't make sacrifices. He's not sacrificed all over again. And Moses' actions, which seem so benign, actually undercut the whole point that God was trying to not only provide, but point to where refreshment would come later. And so we see in Jesus speaking here, he is the source, not only from which we receive but in which we receive the living water. And as we look at the passage, we see verse 39 tells us is the, the living water uh, that he's speaking about here is the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, this, now this was said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Very simple, very clear statement. If you believe in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. But, but notice what the condition is. In order to receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says if anyone is thirsty, and thirsty is an indication of our need. If anyone is thirsty, and that's it, What's the qualification? Are you thirsty? Do you recognize that you have need? Who's thirsty? And the answer is everyone is thirsty. We live in a world that is thirsting for something. G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton once said this, even the man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. And what Chesterton means by that 
in our contemporary day is that everyone is looking for God whether they know it or not. We might say even the man who enters into the door of the strip club is unknowingly looking for God. Even the woman who reads Fifty Shades of Grey or something else like that is actually looking for God. Any person that is trying to better their life in any way, even if it's not something that would be considered questionable, but anyone who's trying to improve, is trying to move and change, is looking for God or what God is able to provide. We live in a world that is thirsty for God, and Jesus offers us living water that not only satisfies our thirst, but that wells up into eternal life and supernatural power. It's a life that is only possible in the presence of God or with God's presence with us. And so we need to ask ourselves this question, am I thirsty? Because if you are thirsty, then you are qualified to receive the grace of God. You're not qualified if you come from the right spiritual or moral pedigree. You're not qualified if you're spiritual enough. You're not qualified if you have finally got to the point where you have completely, or at least sufficiently, surrendered your life. If anyone thirsts, and that's it. That's the qualification. And we need to hear that because so many people seem to think that our thirst, our need, is what disqualifies us from receiving God's grace. We, we tend to think that life in Christ, and particularly when we talk about things like life in the Spirit, somehow is a whole new spiritual plane where we've mastered life. It's kind of like we've moved from the var junior varsity to the varsity. We, we've got a competence level, and now... Now that I'm at this level, I can expect the closeness with God and the blessings that, that come from God. But what we need to recognize and constantly remind ourselves is this, is to be a Christian, is to recognize that our need does not disqualify us. Our need qualifies us. All we need is need. And Jesus is making that quite clear here. And for those of you who have been Christians for a long time, I especially want you to hear this. It's not just that our need is what qualifies us as if it's their initial qualification, but we never run out of our need. Need is what qualifies us at the beginning, and need is what qualifies us every single day thereafter. And that's good, because whether we have blocked it out of our consciousness or not, we are all in need. The, the debt that we owe to God, the need from which we have to God, might be likened to going down to this river down here and then just drawing up a cup of water that you need today. And your need being like that, how many days will it take you to drain the river? Our need is so great that it never is exhausted, and yet that is the good news because when we recognize our need, we recognize then we are qualified to be recipients of God's grace. And yet, it's hard for us to accept that. But 
to simple, and this is what Jesus is saying. Now, Jesus does say something that's rather odd here, though. You may have noticed it. It's in verse 39. He says, now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. And here's the odd part. For as yet, the Spirit had not yet been given. Do you see what is kind of strange there? Now, it's something that's easy to gloss over because we realize it means something and we may not really think about it, but ask yourself this. How is it that John is able to say that the Spirit had not yet been given? The Spirit appears in the second verse of the Bible. The Spirit was hovering over the waters of the nothingness that existed before creation. Throughout the entire Old Testament, we see the Spirit at work in and through various people. David, after he had fallen and was broken, prays to the Lord, take not your spirit from me. And he's praying and speaking as one who apparently had the spirit, and that language would suggest that he thought that it was, it was his. It was there with him. It wasn't something borrowed because he's begging not to have it taken away from him. Even in the coming of the New Testament, John the Baptist, we need to understand that the Gospels are written as still in the Old Covenant time. Until Jesus has ascended, it's still the nature is the Old Covenant. So John the Baptist, we're told, was filled with the Spirit even when he was in the womb. So it, there's just so many things that we can look at in terms of Scripture, and we then have to ask ourselves, how is it that John was able to say that the Spirit had not yet been given when the Spirit had always been present? Well, I've had to speculate about this a lot because I, I, I tried to read a lot about this, see what commentators said. Most of them say nothing. So they weren't helpful at all. But I pieced some things together and tried to wrestle with this. I'm just going to share with you kind of my thought process for what it might be worth. I don't want anybody looking at this passage and seeing, ah, see, here's a clear hypocrisy, here's a clear inconsistency in the scripture. I think the first thing that we understand is, is this, and one commentator was somewhat helpful. I think the, the key is, is found in, in the phrase, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. New Testament scholar Andreas Kostenberger suggests that the word glorified is is simply a shorthand or a euphemism for all the events that are centered in the crucifixion. So it's the life that leads up to that, it's the death through the crucifixion, it's the resurrection, uh, and it's even the ascension that all are, all are related and all are part of what we would call the gospel. And Jesus was glorified, as Philippians says, because he was willing to go to death. He's obviously glorified because, you know, it's pretty impressive when somebody who's dead comes back to life with no help whatsoever. And then ultimately we're told that he was glorified when he resumed his rightful place in heaven where he now is seated on the right hand of God, interceding for you and for me. And so I think Kostenberger is onto something when he's talking about glorified, the key word there, talks about all the events that we would consider the essential components of the gospel. And with that understanding, I started to think about it this way. That prior 
to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Our enemy, Satan, seemed to have both a power and a seemingly free reign to go wherever he wanted. We see this in the Old Testament a couple of occasions where he even comes into God's presence to bring accusation against God's people. Job talks about this and Zechariah through a vision it seems that he approached and was bringing accusation against the high priest Joshua and so there was no place that he was unable to go uh, during that time. And Jesus himself had said that you cannot plunder a strong man's house unless you first bind him. But on the cross and through the resurrection, Jesus in some way has neutered or or clipped the power that the enemy had over us and over this world. In a great kind of Chuck Norris way, what we see is the scriptures teaching us this, is that Jesus entered into death and then he kicked the doors down from the inside. And then he ascended, and this being Ascension Sunday, timing is good. And then, but as he ascended, both from the grave and ultimately ascended, we are told in Ephesians that he led those who were captives into freedom. It's just an incredible scene of what Jesus had accomplished through that gospel. And so he broke down the doors, and in that, he he broke the power. Not that there is no power, but it's not seeming to be the same kind of power as our enemy once had. When Jesus kicked those doors down and he ascended, it was game over. And then, in his ascension, leading the people to freedom, he had completed all that was necessary in redemption. It's redemption that had actually been accomplished as opposed to a promised redemption. And consequently, Christianity in the new covenant carries with it both a presence of God and a power of God that was never previously available to the people because it's unchallenged and it's fullness. Because as John indicates here, Whatever the Spirit was doing before, he had not, had not been poured out until Jesus had been glorified. Now, if I'm anywhere close to reality, you theologians, please be gentle in emailing me about my heresies here. <laughs> At least it helps me to understand what John may mean when he says the Spirit had not yet come because... Jesus at this point, at the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles, had not yet been glorified. But all of this reminds us is that every blessing comes in Christ and because of what he has done for us. But the second thing that we see here is that the consequence of that is that Jesus promised us us, rivers of living water will flow from us, from those who believe. Now, most Bible scholars, they they seem to be in these debates that I won't bore you with the details of, but kind of the the syntax of these verses as to where you should put the period and where the new sentence begins, and some of them would seem to suggest more what we've already talked, didn't really need to be restated because it's it's been true, 
uh, already, but that the rivers will flow out of Jesus. Well, that part is true, but most scholars have come down to say the way that it is written, the way that most of your translations would indicate, says that what is promised here is not just a reiteration of what is already true, but it's a promise of something new, something different, something unexpected, is that the rivers of living water that do flow from Jesus will also flow out of those who belong to Jesus. And that's the primary and the plain meaning of this text. It seems to be consistent, too, with what Jesus has already taught. If you remember in John chapter 4, when Jesus was speaking with the woman at the well, he declared this, everyone who drinks of the water, this water, the water that I give, the water that comes from me, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give, uh, give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And, and the imagery that Jesus is speaking there is a gusher that's coming out of the person in whom Christ himself dwells. Now, he wasn't clear to the woman at the well. The implication of that, not as clear as he is here in, in John chapter 7. There is no verse at that point saying he was speaking of the Holy Spirit, but you put the things together, and we have a, a pretty good understanding of what Jesus is teaching here. And so he's saying that for those who belong to him, not only do we have the benefit and the privilege of receiving the water that wells up to eternal life, but then as we receive it out of us, will also flow that living water and will flow upward toward God and outward toward other people. What are the implications for us when we learn that those who are in Christ not only receive benefit, but will also be the source through which or a contributor, a tributary of the living water for others. And I'd like to share a bunch, but obviously I don't have time. So I want to mark two. One, I think, is a, we would see as a natural implication of all that Jesus is teaching is a life marked by love. See, we need to understand that the presence of the Spirit is God's mark upon the believer, and it's a mark that declares loved. Because you only can receive the Spirit if you are loved by God, and therefore His grace is upon you, and the love is demonstrated perfectly in the gift of the person of Jesus Christ, and in that gift of Jesus Christ is where the living water comes from. And so we recognize that if the Holy Spirit belongs to you because you are believing and trusting in Christ, that itself is a stamp. It's a reminder to you, whether you feel it or not, that you are loved by God. We need to recognize that it is a true statement, God is love. But when we say it like that, it just sounds so general connected by the gift of the Holy Spirit that is within all who believe. God's love is made very particular. He loves each person. 
in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. Not because the Spirit dwells there, but the Spirit dwells there because he loves you. John tells us in his first epistle that what's most important is not that we love others or love God, but that God loves us. But then he goes on and says that we love because God first loved us. And so as the Spirit is within us, we see it is a stamp, a reminder that you who believe are loved by God. The response is we love him because he loved us. But then we also are able to love others because he loved us. And that tells us really the, the second implication that I'll touch on this morning is because while the first mark is a life marked by love, I think the second implication is a, a life marked by service to others. The language itself seems to indicate that. Rivers of living water will flow from you. In other words, it's not just something that we keep within ourselves. You're not able to store the river within yourself. It also seems to suggest to us that you can have as much as you want, but it's not just for you. And that whole concept is consistent with the covenant that God made with Abraham in the first place in Genesis chapter 12. God called Abraham and said, I will bless you. I will make you a blessing to the nations. Through you, I will bless others. And so there are some theologians that have coined the, the phrase that I really appreciate in breaking down the covenant and saying the covenant made with Abraham, there's a top line, there's a bottom line. And the top line of the covenant is I will bless you. And there's a whole river from which we can draw that we can never exhaust. But I will bless you and you will be a blessing to others. And therefore, there's a whole river of resource that you have that can be poured out in blessing the people who are in your life or who God is calling you to, to go to, to have into your life. We need to understand that those two things go together. They're not conditional. God is not saying, I will bless you so that you can bless others. In other words, as if you're just kind of the, the care hold, the, the, you know, the, the holder. Okay, you can take what you need to survive, but really I'm going to give this, I'm going to trust this stuff to you. You're not a trustee holding this for other people. His blessings are upon you. But he has, has so much of the blessing in the presence of the Holy Spirit that his intent, which has always been the case, he calls Israel so that he could call all the nations together from the uh, people of every nation, is to bless other people. Those are the two sides, two aspects, the top line and the bottom line of that covenant. And God is blessing you to enable you to participate in his mission because your neighbors are thirsting, your co-workers are thirsting, your friends are thirsting, you have family members who are thirsting. People are thirsting whether they know it or not. And the reason some people don't know that they are thirsting is because they have something that is quenching their thirst but is not satisfying them ultimately on the inside. I remember hearing and probably still going the commercials for some of the soft drinks, particularly probably see them during the summertime. You know, the different soft drink, it's a thirst quencher for, if you have a big thirst, take this soft drink. 
But as I come to, came to understand later is that while your thirst is quenched, those sodas actually dehydrate you. You're not feeling thirsty because it, it tastes good, it, it, it's meeting, it's, it's wetting uh, what is dry, but ultimately it's working against you. And the same thing is true spiritually for everyone is thirsting, but many people have bought into whatever and they've tasted it and their thirst is quenched and yet they're still dry. There's still need of what only God can give. And we need to ask ourselves, what happens when we don't get enough water? Our bodies begin to shut down and we die. And the same is true for all of us spiritually. If our thirst is not quenched and satisfied by God, his grace, which comes in the promise of this living water, then ultimately we remain spiritually dead. I know that some of you may believe and agree, but you doubt that you can be used. I would simply remind you, let's go back to that woman at the well in John chapter 4. Whatever you've done, she's probably got you beat. Total outcast, both because of her choices and her behavior, and just because of what she inherited as being part of the Samaritan people. And yet, even in her inability, even in her disqualified condition, she essentially led an entire village to Jesus Christ. You are not unusable. Now, I'm not suggesting that God is going to use you to lead your whole neighborhood to Christ. That would be wonderful. And I don't want to say that it will not happen, that some of you, but maybe not everybody is going to see the same kind of fruit. We're told that there's rivers of living water. Not all rivers are the same, are they? Some are much larger. Some are prettier. Some are just more significant because of where they are set. And yet, every one of them contributes and is necessary, not only for the sustaining of life, but to the others as well. And you also have been called by God, have been blessed by God because you believe in God, or actually you believe because you've been blessed. Those two things just continue to be the same truth, on the same opposite sides of the same coin. You who are loved by God also will be used by God because the mark, the implication is that our lives will be marked service to others. We've been blessed so that we can be a blessing. We've been comforted so that we can give the same comfort to other people that we have received. The scriptures are filled with that and this passage tells us how we're able to do that. This passage is not exhaustive on all that there is to know about the Holy Spirit. And I didn't have time as much as I would like to. If you would like, we can come back again in a little while, and I'll finish with all the other notes I've got and tell you a little bit more. But I do think that what is clearly stated here gives us a great 
framework and foundation for our understanding of the Spirit. Because way too many Christians like to focus so much attention on the person of the Holy Spirit and all the weird things that, you know, seem to go along with belief and the Spirit being dwelled within you, we lose sight of what Jesus roots us in is the Spirit takes us back to Jesus. The Spirit comes to us as we are connected with Jesus. But it's still difficult for many of us to understand. I'm going to wrap up with this. Richard Lovelace, who was a professor at Gordon-Conwell for a number of years, primarily a church historian, but in his, his book, Dynamics of Spiritual Life, which I highly recommend to anybody, um, it's not easy reading necessarily, but it is readable, and it is profound in its depth. It's one that I read over and over again. I won't say every year. I should, but it's probably every couple of years. I've read it through several times. But he makes this statement in, in that book. See if this resonates with either your understanding of how people relate to the Holy Spirit or, or your own experience in relating to the Holy Spirit. Lovelace writes this, the typical relationship between believers and the Holy Spirit in today's church is too often like that between the husband and wife in a bad marriage. They live under the same roof, and the husband makes constant use of the wife's services, but he fails to communicate with her, recognize her presence, and celebrate their relationship with her. And the metaphor is, somewhat backwards from what we often talk about because Jesus is the, bride, is the, uh, the bridegroom and the church is his bride. So in that case, the, the church would be the wife. But he's making a significant point. As we relate to the person of the Holy Spirit in this metaphor, many of us, because of our discomfort or lack of understanding or because of abuses that we've seen, uh, that those who claim to have a corner on the market on the Holy Spirit we just become uncomfortable. And so there is a relationship that is legal, but not organic, and is not beautiful. The question is, how do we overcome this? And let me just offer a couple of things, and then we'll finish up. One, remind ourselves every day that life with God is life in the Spirit. We need to be reminded. Second, constantly remind ourselves that Jesus is the source. We don't need to think of Jesus as the one who's the giver, and now we have. We need to see Jesus more like a tap. If you're going to receive the water, if you're going to be the one is going to be, you know, the water is going to flow through you, you can't get disconnected from the tap. Some of you are going to water your lawns this summer. Disconnect the hose from the tap and see how much water comes out. But that's many of us as Christians as we've assumed that, ha, huh, now we have the Spirit we don't need Jesus as much anymore. We just go back to him when we dry up. What we need to do is constantly remind ourselves that Jesus is the source, that it's found in him, and we are dynamically connected by believing and reminding ourselves of everything that's involved in Jesus glorified. And it's Jesus glorified is what part of, is how we, uh, how we are connected, how the Spirit has become. I mean, it only makes sense if the Spirit didn't come in its fullness until Jesus was glorified, then we don't forget about Jesus' glorification and expect the Spirit to continue to flow from us. 
And it may seem absurd, but the Galatians did exactly that thing. Galatians 3.3 tells us this. Paul was confronting them, and he said, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? And yet, I would suggest this is the life of most evangelical Christians. God gave me everything I need. I'm going to go my way. My study, my prayer, my attendance in church, my teaching, my going on mission trips, all that we do, we're disconnected from Christ. Not, we can't, he can't lose us, but we're not experiencing his power. So recognize your need more deeply every day. Again, some of us tend to think that life in the spirit is this higher elevated plane. And when we get there, we won't have the same anxieties and fears and needs as we had before. But it may well be, and probably is, that the primary work of the Spirit in our lives, or the initial, is that we, he would give us a greater understanding of our sin and our brokenness. Because that gives us an understanding of our need for grace. And what's the qualification for the Spirit? Thirsty. Need. Drink more deeply of God's Holy Spirit. Invite him to be at work in us and through us. So many of us, are, our prayer life indicates that we just want to drop, bring comfort, relief, enable me to do whatever. And we settle for drops when rivers are given. Pray, speak, no negotiating, sacrifice has already been offered. Speak to the rock of your salvation and ask him to fill you and for those rivers to flow through you in ways that you didn't understand. And finally, remind ourselves that Christianity is more than a confession of truths. It's a communion with Christ by the power of his spirit. Father, we give thanks to you for sending your spirit. We pray that you would be at work by your spirit in those who are here. Break us, shape us, humble us, but fulfill your promise that by your spirit, through your means of grace, make us like Jesus. That we would have his joy, his assurance, and the fruitfulness that he has promised. Enable us as individuals and as a church to truly grow in the maturity of your grace and to be a people that are of your word and of your spirit. To your praise and glory in this church and to all we encounter.